This is an ABC podcast. Tarloffa lover and warm Pacific greetings. It's Monday the 12th of June and you're listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Talia Olatia. Today on the program, weeks after Typhoon Mawa hits Guam, some residents are still without power and water as recovery efforts continue. PNG's Police Commissioner calls for former PM Peter O'Neill to make himself available to police who are investigating allegations of perjury from him originating from the UBA, UBS rather Commission of Inquiry and New Caledonia's Academy Feminine Takeout, the first ever OFC Women's Champions League, which was hosted in Port Moresby. The inaugural tournament was aimed at driving competition in the region and helping Pacific teams get to the world stage. All those stories and more coming up on Pacific Beat. Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister has moved to calm the public after outrage erupted over a rainbow flag raised at the US Embassy. The flag was was flown to commemorate Pride Month, a time where the United States celebrates LGBT LGBTQIA plus communities and their contributions. Responding to questions in Parliament, James Marape said foreign missions can do what they want on their land, but he has reminded them of PNG's values. And so USA Embassy, if they are flying a flag that is perceived as inappropriate for our country, then they have their discretion to do what they want to do in, in, in their, their territory, their space. But I did release a, a public uh, statement out already that uh, we will write to U.S. Embassy, we will write to any missions in our country to ensure that they operate within decorum and in respect to our culture and to our Christian, Christian beliefs. And anything contrary to our culture and our Christian uh, practice and beliefs uh, must be must be respected. So uh, that that is a letter that is going to them and all other missions, not especially targeting USA mission here. That was Prime Minister James Marape speaking there. But some wish PNG's leaders would do more to support gay, lesbian and queer people in the country. Emmanuel Penny is a human rights activist and community leader from CPIC. He's also He also heads Kumul Champions, an LGBTQI network in Papua New Guinea. He says though he is disappointed by the backlash, he understands why the pride flag attracted so much hate. So when this happened, I think several years ago at the Australian High Com, um, I was outraged. I got into a big fight with people. Our lives were threatened. There was more than 600, several thousand actually, comments around it. Mm. And much of the comments are around Bible, religion, say so there's some fake culture. Others have no excuse to just be vile and cruel. But after that, I learned, uh, and through my work, I learned that I'm not going to get angry about it because I understand where the hate is coming from. Where, where do you believe that hate comes from? Well, you see, it's not... Um, this is how I see it. Mm. The flag is part of the culture of the LGBTIQ in, in the world, but it's not part of the Melanesian culture. 
it's still something really foreign. The, LG, the words LGBTIQ, the labels, are also foreign. That doesn't mean that homosexuality is not practiced in Papua New Guinea. It's part of our lives here for the last 50,000 years when we, when we um, settled in this, in this great land. Mm. The problem is that when, when Papua New Guineans are confronted with the flag, they see it as an outside thing coming into Papua New Guinea, and they, they quickly think that um, homosexuality is, is, is from the outside coming into Papua New Guinea with the flag and the tags or the labels LGBTIQ. But Papua New Guineans go day by day working, living with people of uh, members of my community. They have no problems with it. We hug, we kiss, we talk, we share food. We are children of this land. They accept that. It's just that when the flag is raised in front of them, they are terrified of the flag, not the actual lives we live in Papua New Guinea. That's how I see it. Oh, that's very interesting because we do see in some of those comments, particularly around the raising of this flag, that people are also saying, yeah, it's a foreign, it's a foreign thing that's come in. Um, but at the same time, they say that it it's, goes against Christian values. We heard that again in Parliament as well. Uh, what is your response to some people who have that uh, opinion? Uh, yeah, so Christianity has done a lot of damage in Papua New Guinea, and so it's one of the main excuses for the ignorance of the flag. But again, like I said, they still see that flag as something from outside. It's that flag, that symbol, mm. and not our lives we live here as homosexual, or people from the members of the homosexual community in Papua New Guinea. Mm. We have a son, children of this land. We go by our name. We don't go by uh, the, the labels, LGBTIQ, and we don't carry flags and walk around. We just live as Papua New Guineans, and we are accepted in our community as Papua New Guineans, as Manu, as James, as Alice, as Josephine. And considering that, Manu, I mean, are you a bit um, disappointed perhaps in the leaders of Papua New Guinea for not uh, explicitly saying that, that perhaps, you know, the flag, the labels might, might be foreign, but, but the, you know, the love and respect that you have for your fe- fellow brothers and sisters, whatever, whoever they might be, um, is not foreign and is part of this country. Do you wish there was more support? Yes, I do. Uh, we, we actually had this conversation earlier on this year with the American, uh, the, uh, uh, the leaders at the American embassy. Mm. And I said, fly the flag. It moves boundaries. It creates com- conversation. I don't care about the, the, the vile comments, um, all the threats of, you know, taking people's lives and, 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 and all the abuse. But um, I'm happy that the flag is flown. Um, I'm way past disappointment about the leaders because I think the parliamentarians are not leaders. They're just members of parliament who are there doing all kinds of crazy things. And they absolutely do not understand their hate, their ignorance, and how they perceive the flag and their behavior towards the flag and every other uh, behavior towards life lived, lived lives in Papua New Guinea as members of the LGBTIQ community. That was activist and community leader Emmanuel Penny speaking there to Priyanka Srinivasan.
New Caledonia's Academy Feminine have claimed the inaugural OFC Women's Champions League in Papua New Guinea. In a tournament aimed at driving competition in the region, it all came down to a very exciting final day of play. Here's what happened. Going into the final day of the tournament without losing a game, New Caledonia's Academy Feminine needed at least a draw against Solomon Islands Kolowale FC to become the first winners of the OFC Women's Champions League. But Kolowale skipper Eileen Peggy wasn't going to make it easy for them, scoring the first goal of the game late in the first half. She can lead this on through. There she is, the captain for the And Kolale FC have registered its first goal of their final match. It was the first time that Academy had trailed in the championships, but it didn't last for long after an impressive volley from outside the box by Christelle Wanaway just two minutes later quickly levelled the score. One way. Well, Christelle Wanaway. Answering back. What a strike. Academy then dominated the second half. Two goals from Alice Wanessia and one from Louise Lupak sealing the deal for the young team from New Caledonia and claiming the inaugural title with a 4-1 win from behind. Speaking after the game, player of the match Alice Wanessia, speaking to OFC through an interpreter, said the team gave their all during the tournament. So she's saying that she's just lost for words and um, she's really excited and they gave their all till the very end and they didn't give up. It was Academy Feminine's defence helmed by skipper Edsy Mateo that made them so hard to beat and this was reflected when she was named player of the tournament receiving the golden ball. And Kolowali FC's Sylvester Minu took out the golden glove for best goalkeeper. Later in the day, the home team Hikari United went into the last game of the tournament knowing the title was no longer up for grabs but still wanting to put on a show for the Port Moresby crowd. Hikari dominated the game against Fiji's Lambasa from the outset with two goals in the first half from Marie Kaipu, proving why she later received the Golden Boot Award as top goalscorer of the tournament. It was missed by Kuberi. Here's Kaipu. And as Marie Kaipu has done on so many occasions in this tournament, as Kaipu finds herself in the box in space, Marie Kaipu with her second. Lambasa were unable to respond and with that 2-0 win, Hikari United claimed the match, making them second on the table overall for the tournament and also picking up the fair play team of the tournament, having not picked up a single yellow card across their games. Speaking to OFC after the game, Hikari coach Ericsson Koming said it was a well-fought championship that hopefully will inspire more women and girls to take up the game. Especially uh, thanks to the supporters, I think uh, they came in numbers today and uh, they pushed us through the game. The team did well today and uh, through the tournament, I think we, we came into the tournament as uh, one of the top clubs in, uh, in our country and to play well in the tournament and as you can see, uh, we, we only got uh, two against and uh, I think we, we're going to take a lot out of this tournament and uh, I think we have to go back to our local league and from that experience, uh, we're going to take the local league uh, 
with, with Storm. And I think uh, if they wanted the champions the tournament again to play in the OFC tournament again, uh, we just have to uh, play well in the local league. The turnout uh, in the last couple of days and weeks, uh, it, it, it has been great. And to hear the, the voice today and the, the chanting and the, the noise, uh, it's, it helps us. The girls gave it back to the supporters and I think they deserve everything. That was Hikari United coach Ericsson Koming ending that report. And no doubt there were big celebrations in Numea when Academy Feminine returned home as winners of the first OFC Women's Champions League. And PNG correspondent Tim Swanston was there at the game on Saturday and he'll bring you all the news and what happened from groundside in the afternoon edition of Pacific Beat with Richard Hewitt. Time now to find out what's making news across the region. And to do that, I'm joined by producer Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Talia. Let's go to Papua New Guinea first, where the police commissioner, David Manning, wants the former PM, Peter O'Neill, to be interviewed by police investigators. That's right. So he's called for Mr O'Neill to make himself available to police immediately uh, following allegations of of perjury. So that's according to a statement from the Royal PNG Constabulary, uh, which was released on Saturday evening, and the state's police are, uh, are satisfied that Mr O'Neill gave false evidence uh, in the UBS Commission of Inquiry, which was set up to establish whether there were breaches uh, of PNG laws and if the country had suffered as a result of that deal. Uh, according to Mr Manning, police have sufficient evidence that Mr O'Neill has perjured the inquiry and thereby committing an offence, and they want him to turn himself into National Police Headquarters this morning. That, of course, is all what the police are alleging. Um, has Mr O'Neill issued a response? Yeah, very much so. So he, he fired back uh, yesterday, accusing uh, the police commissioner of uh, intimidation and denying that perjury claim as false. However, he also said he would present himself for questioning this morning, uh, and he urged members of the public to attend as well, in a peaceful manner, however. Uh, he also added it's been 12 months since that inquiry, which no charges were found against him, and he would very much welcome the opportunity to face the courts over what he says was a politically motivated uh, commission of inquiry, uh, but not another commissioner-instructed investigation. And I uh, I assume that that will have a lot of um, Papua New Guinea eyes on it today, um, and we'll be sure to bring you any updates on the afternoon um, edition of the show with Richard Hewitt. Um, let's go now to the Pacific Islands Forum Secretary Gen- uh, General Henry Puna, who will meet with the Australian Australian Prime Minister this week to discuss Australia's new security pact with the US and Britain. What is he concerned about? Yeah, so he's worried about the broader implications of that pact uh, and the impact that the AUKUS deal could have on the Pacific. So this is reported by the Samoa Observer and it comes after some Pacific leaders raised concerns that the AUKUS deal might lead to the nuclearisation of the region. Now, as we know, that AUKUS deal, it's, uh, it's been in the news um, a lot in the last six months. Australia stands to gain a number of uh, conventionally armed nuclear submarines as part of that pact. And uh, and Pacific leaders worry that there's a possibility it will breach the Rotonga Treaty, uh, which declares the region a nuclear-free zone. Obviously, Mr Mr. Puna is a former Cook Islands PM uh, himself, 
and uh, and he'll be meeting with Anthony Albanese and representatives from other countries uh, to get reassurance that this deal won't lead to that nuclearisation. Mm, I know that there has definitely been a, a lot of concern about um, the that AUKUS deal. I um, know that Dame Meg Taylor, the former Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Forum, when she was speaking to the TV show The Pacific, um, was saying that some of their concerns is that some people didn't actually know what was that the deal was even happening until they read it in the news. And that um, then concerns them because depending on how the deal is made out, what discussions happen is if Pacific leaders will be kept abreast of those conversations. Um, so no doubt it will be a very important conversation between Mr Puna and Mr Albanese this week. And of course, we'll bring you all the latest here on Pacific Beat. Let's go to some sporting news now and more specifically to Rugby League where the PNG Hunters have recorded a second straight win. Yeah, that's right. So uh, they beat the competition newcomers, the Western Clydesdales, 40-4. to um, They beat them for the second time this season, as a matter of fact. They ran in uh, seven tries to one in Port Moresby. Uh, well, they've proven pretty tough to beat this season. Uh, they now sit two wins outside of finals contention with nine rounds still to play. Meanwhile, in the New South Wales Ron Massey Cup, the Kybeedi Silktails also recorded uh, a second a second straight win. They beat the Canterbury Crusaders thirty four to twelve in Lautoka. Uh, they're suddenly back in the finals hunt as well. Only two wins outside of the top four, with uh, with several games still to play. So, so good news in the rugby league sporting front. Not so great on the rugby union stand uh, front, but um, but great effort from Drew nonetheless. Indeed, and we'll have Fiji reporter Lithe Mavono on shortly to talk all about that. Um, Kyle, thanks so much for bringing us those stories. Thank you, Talia. That was Kyle Evans there with some of the news making news around the region today. Pacific Beat. You are listening to Pacific Beat with me, Talia Olatia. To Guam now, where scores of people are still without power and water after a super typhoon Mawa swept over the area a couple of weeks ago. Many people are still in emergency shelters and some businesses are still closed. For more, I'm joined by Joan Uggen Charfras, who is the news director and executive producer at KUAM News. Bonus, Joan, and thanks for joining Pacific Beat. <laughs> Buenas and half a day. Thank you for having me. So, Joan, what is the latest in terms of water and power lines? Um, how are efforts going in getting that back up and running? Well, you know, um, with, as far as power, um, right now the island is at 76% um, of the total island has power. Um, you know, we've brought in over the past week, we've brought in linemen from Washington, as well as Pompeii, um, to assist uh, our crews here. Our crews have been working, you know, 24 hours a day, um, you know, like at three o'clock in the morning, we'll still see a crew out um, trying to get the power up and running. Um, So it gives these guys, uh, the guys, um, assistance and also time to kind of rest, um, especially, you know, with this kind of schedule that they have. As far as water, um, 91 of our wells are operable. They're online. There's still um, pockets of places throughout the island that don't have water. Um, So what we have are tankers that are set up for them so uh, nearby so that they can uh, collect water for their use. Mm. Um, Right now, it's at about close to like 80% of the island has water. So they're really... um, they're really trying to get to that to that point where 
uh, they could reach out to these areas that still don't have water. Mm, indeed. And where are most of these outages concentrated? So, uh, you know, northern side was hit pretty hard. Um, so there are um, majority of the those that without power are, are in the northern area of the island. Um, some of the villages up there. There are maybe a couple of villages down south um, because when the typhoon hit, it started south and then went directly um, fed up to the north. Uh, so there are a couple of areas in the south that are still without power. But mm-hmm. right now, those are the target areas to, to get back on, mm-hmm. uh, to get the power back on. And what about the situation in emergency shelters? Are people still needing them and requiring them? So um, previously, uh, when the at the start of Typhoon, there were about tw- uh, 11 shelters that were open. Right now, we're down to two. Uh, shelters. Um, there's about 300 residents that are still in those shelters, and FEMA, uh, alongside with the the government, are working to to find placement, temporary placement for these uh, residents. Mm-hmm. Um, they had opened the second shelter actually on Friday afternoon, uh, just so so residents can feel a little bit more comfortable. In given the situation, um, you know, just a lot of these are like families. It's not individuals. A lot of them are families. So they wanted to make them as comfortable as possible. Uh, So there's two that are currently um, open. Mm -hmm. And what has the response been from residents? I know that it's been a couple of weeks and, you know, recovery efforts uh, essentially started even before the storm hit. I know that the governor, Lulia Nguero, asked President Biden for a pre-landfall emergency declaration, you know, which got that aid moving early. So what's the reaction been to what, you know, some may say is a slow recovery, um, but how are residents feeling? Uh, Is there anger? Is it patience? Is it, you know, just resilience that we've come to know as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely resilience. Um, I know that, you know, in the past, we've obviously had our share of typhoons. Um, a, a lot of the older uh, residents, you know, they, they've they been through this. I think it's the the younger generation that um, is kind of experiencing it for the, some experiencing it for the first time. Uh, so not having power to generate you know, iPads or or things that they're so accustomed to. I, I'm sure that's an inconvenience for them, but they see they see the alignment, they see the power crews, they see the water crews out working hard um, to get everything restored. Um, as far as uh, the process of recovering, you know, I'm I'm sure that they may have many have disagreements as to if the government's you know could have been um, quicker in response, but um, but I think it's just a matter of of like if you ask any individual if they feel like it's going smoothly for them or um, you know it, it helps that FEMA is on the ground and assisting with families that did sustain damage in the typhoon. 
indeed. You're listening to Joan Uggen Charfres, the News Director and Executive Producer at KUAM News in Guam, talking about the recovery efforts after Super Typhoon, Super Typhoon Mawa, rather. Um, now, Joan, what are authorities um, talking about in terms of disease outbreaks? I know often after um, cyclones and typhoons, there's concerns around stagnant water. Have there been any warnings from authorities in that respect? Um, no, you know, there hasn't been that. In fact, um, there has been a lot of uh, outreach uh, to get to, you know, for those that may need some assistance as far as um, uh, medical assistance. But there hasn't been any kind of uh, issue or concern regarding any kind of disease. Um, I think what really helped was that the couple days after um, it was it was, you know, the, the sun was out and the weather was cooperating. So that's why we were able to already get boots on the ground and start the recovery mm-hmm. process as far as like cleaning up the debris. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as like, uh, like de- um, the debris out and about, like the green waste and everything, they've set up three disposal sites throughout the island where residents can come and drop off um, either um, green waste, white goods, or, or metals that were scattered around their their, their uh, residence. So, if you go around the island, you'll see like these huge piles of of all they've collected so far. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think that's helped as far as keeping away kind of the, the you know the potential yeah. for disease and mm-hmm. and like. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so random sometimes just talking about like an event like this and talking about how lucky it was that the sun came out afterwards. But you know, <laughs> on the one hand weather can be so destructive, but in the other hand it can also be really helpful. Um yeah. yeah, and speaking of helpful, I know that a lot of volunteers have also come in to assist. How does that um, you know, help with the morale and the recovery? Because of course, you know, these things you can't just snap your fingers and it's all fixed. Um but what does it mean to have so many people pitching in? You know, I think with with the people from Guam, you know, um, even those like abroad, like in the States or um, we are, we're very, when we're quick to spring into action when one, one of us needs help. And there's a huge mutual aid effort going on right now in California, where there's a bunch of, of organizations that um, like Guam based or Chamorro. Um, based organizations that are putting together this huge mutual aid effort to fill up uh, a, con- a shipping container full of supplies and goods so they could send it here uh, to assist with those. Um, rather than, for example, and rather than like bottles of water, what they're doing is they're trying to really send things that um, could be reused. So like portable or portable gas stoves, um, non-perishable food items, um, more like water containers that can be reused over and over. So um, we're feeling the love definitely um, from all over. And and I think that is a huge morale booster when it comes to recovery here on island. Mm, indeed. And also I appreciate you, Joan. I know that you've made yourself um, t- available to Pacific Beat to talk about the typhoon <laughs> as it's happened and it's really important getting that information out. Um, so we really appreciate you making the time again to speak to us this morning. 
Oh, anytime, anytime. I, I have a, I have, like I, I mentioned before, I do have a place for Australia in my heart. So. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> and Sorry. we have a place for Guam as well. So it's definitely reciprocal. Joan, thank you so much for joining Pacific Beat this morning. Glad, glad to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Joan Uggen Charfris. She's the news director and executive producer at KUAM News. And for more updates, you can always follow their Facebook page. Newsroom Footy. Hosted by me, Sam Wax. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next gen Nisian Footy stars. Nisian Footy. Nisian Footy. Monday afternoons at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You're listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia and speaking of Nisian footy, coming up next we'll talk about the Fiji Ndrua who unfortunately weren't able to make it through to the semis of the Super Rugby Pacific competition but lots of Fijians and the Pacific as well are still super proud of them. You'll hear all about it with our Fiji reporter Lithe Mavono coming up next. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Now, after the Fijian drew a stun to the Crusaders in a round three upset, there were hopes they could pull it off again when they faced the defending champions in their first ever Super Rugby Pacific playoffs over the weekend. Unfortunately, though, it wasn't to be the Crusaders <coughs> pulling off an impressive 49-8 to win, yet again proving just how strong they are when they play at home and stretching their winning streak in Christchurch to 28 playoffs. But given the Andrua made their first finals in only their second year in the competition. There's still obviously lots to be proud about and excitement for the future as well. I'm joined by Fiji reporter Lithe Mavono now in Suva. Good morning, Yandra Lithe, and thanks for joining Pacific Beat. Do you still have a voice after the weekend's game? Yandra Vinakatalia, the voice is not all quite there, unfortunately. Far too much screaming and shouting on the weekend, Talia. But it was, as you said, it was definitely still so much to be proud of. Um, finishing the season on the seventh positioning compared to, you know, being shy of the bottom of the rankings uh, table last year is, is quite a lot for Fijians all over the world, actually. And, of course, all, lots of Fijians, no matter where they were, stopped to watch the game. I had to laugh when I saw a tweet that had members of the Ministry of Justice out in the Lao group waiting to watch the game in what looked like just the remotest area. They're all kind of huddled around one laptop. You can barely see the screen. There were so many people around it. I'm sure there were lots of stories like that around Fiji over the weekend. You know, I found myself I found myself out and about when the game was happening. You know, I had I had a, uh, a thing to go to earlier in the day, and so I was trying to rush everyone else home because you know it's seven oh five the game's going to start. But I found myself still making my way home and stopped all over the place because you just saw these crowds of Fijians everywhere in the in the market in Suva. You know, vegetable vendors who should have already been on the way home to the mountains and far away are stopping at different parts of the markets and just watching coffee. Shops 
shops that should have been closed at four or five o'clock in the afternoon. People are crowded around. And the mood is interesting. It's, it's as if we're right there watching, not a sound until, you know, some, there's a break in the competition or until, of course, um, the try and then people are yelling and screaming. But it stopped the nation, Talia. People, there was not a soul that didn't watch this game and that didn't watch with, you know, hopes and anticipation. Um, but I think so, so very few people are saddened by these mm. results. We finished, Fiji and Drua finished on, um, you know, sh- uh, uh, second to last of the bottom of the rankings table last year. And now they're in the top eight in, in seventh place ahead of, you know, a number of Australian and New Zealand competition. And, you know, Fijians are very, very big on rugby. And and off late, we've come away from the fairy tale way of looking at how we do and being very strategic now and watching the competition and taking note of the points. So um, there's not a sad person in sight. Obviously, it would have been an amazing fairy tale if they had, you know, crushed the 11-time champion Crusaders. But I think we all went into this knowing this would be the end of the line, and the idea was to finish strong and uh, finish happy. Mm, it's definitely like the best loss that I have ever seen because <laughs> immediately, like, I feel like the final whistle went, and everyone was like, "Well, next year we're going to aim for the semis and even the final." Um, what does this no, game? Yeah, what does this game mean for Fijian rugby? And even the potential. I know people talk about a, a bull around next year, but what does it mean, especially since you know it took decades for Fiji just to even have a team in the Super Rugby. Um, You know, what does this, what will this momentum build? Well, look, Talia, when I started reporting on on Fiji rugby, and that was about, you know, 20-something-odd years ago, we used to talk about it with a lot of pain. Um, The fact that in Fiji, during the Super Rugby competition, it's it's like like the origins for Papua New Guinea. You know, we're completely crazy. Nothing, no major event is scheduled in the playoffs of the Super Rugby competition because Fijians everywhere are paying attention, and we all have our different games. And, you know, a lot of us uh, tend to um, support all the New Zealand teams, so we have competitions on the best dressed fans. We have, you know, we have bettings that's going on and, and everyone has these watch parties. And, you know, interestingly, ironically, uh, quite a large number of Fijians uh, were formerly Crusaders fans. And so to have our own team, a team that we can all get behind and a team that proven to us in only their second season that they're so deserving of of all of our support both you know the moral kind and and, and of course in, in corporate sponsorship is um it's indescribable i've yet to find a word and um and nick sass and i were interviewing fans um a week uh, just over the weekend to ask them what what it means to them and all you get is emotions all you get is, you know, tears welling up in their eyes as they're searching for the right way to explain what it means to see our team out there. But but more more importantly, our team making the playoffs in only the second season. So um, to have them pull around, which, as we understand it, is almost a sure thing. Um, I, I don't even know if I should even be working during during that weekend, Talia. I'm, I'm probably going to have to ask the ABC to just let me be a Fijian rugby fan on that weekend. But it means more than anything else in in the world to Fiji's rugby fans and and as you know rugby is a unifying factor in Fiji everyone here is a rugby fan oh my goodness they say rugby is the game played in heaven but I think it probably goes Fiji heaven (laughs) and in terms of like games that represent (laughs) everyone and I did have to laugh when you said that you were already planning time off for next year that's that's literally what my dad would do whenever the All Blacks would play (laughs) he'd be like I have to take Monday off too because of potential recovery (laughs) 
<laughs> and you know, it's at uh, Fiji. They're just, they're just happy. People are happy to be in the game. And I think um, the Fijian captain Melin Dernalangi said it very well when he explained, you know, what it was that that went wrong, or at least how the game went. But at the end of it, he says, "Look, we're just learning to play this 80-minute game. We're just we're just learning how to be there, how to last that long, how to come back strong. But you can rest assured that in the 2024 season, we're coming for for the semifinals. You know, we're coming for even better than what we're doing." now so there's a lot of fired up Fijians very happy I don't think anyone is mourning the loss of the Fijian draw against the Crusaders no doubt and of course there is always the Rugby World Cup later on this year so it's not as if (laughs) Fijians will have to go without rugby for too long which is probably a good thing Yeah, and, and, and about three quarters of the Fijian draw have made it into our extended Rugby World Cup squad. So, yeah, we just went from, you know, one competition to another. But that's that's kind of how it is in, in, in Fiji. We basically punctuate our lives according to the rugby season. You know, whether it's sevens or fifteens, whether it's Super Rugby or, or World Cup, that's that's what it means to be in a country that's completely taken over by rugby. Oh, indeed. Um, Well, Lithe, always a joy to talk to you, especially on a Monday morning. And I think that you've definitely summed up that infectious excitement (laughs) and that pride that Fijians are feeling. So, Vinaka Vakalevi, thank you for joining Pacific Beat this morning. Vinaka Talia, have a good day. You too. That was ABC's Fiji reporter Lithe Mavono joining us there from Suva. Inzane Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league. Featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League, Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Your home of rugby league in the Pacific. You're listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. My name is Talia Oletia, and my next guest, I have to admit, is very impressive. British-born Fijian-Australian Sabrina Sharma has been fighting for the rights of women for many years. She served on the Fiji High Court and in 2021 was awarded a lead 50-50 International Champion of Change Award for her community efforts and engagement. And the award was given in honour of the work she's done to bring about positive change in the lives of rural women in Fiji. She's now living in Australia but continues her work with women and communities Communities and she joins me now, Yandra Sabrina, and thank you for joining Pacific Beat. Uh, Bula, Bula Vinaka, Talia, how are you? I'm doing very well. Now, it sounds like you are living the life or living the life that my parents wanted for me going into law and achieving so many great things. I understand um, it was your dad who um, himself, a uh, well-known and respected lawyer that may have, you know, lit that path for you to go down that legal route. That's absolutely correct. From a very young age, I've been observing his hard work and determination, and he's been the wind beneath my wings. Um, he he became a member of Lincoln's Inn in, in 1977 in uh, London, and then went on to attain his honours degree in law in 1979, and then became an English barrister after that. So a highly ambitious individual and um, I can't even say he, he shoots for the moon. I mean, he shoots for far beyond that. <laughs> and he's an absolute inspiration for, for anyone who works with him. He's been a great mentor in my life. 
Oh, my goodness, to have that knowledge and especially that legal knowledge on tap as well. A lot of the work that you have done has focused on women's rights. And I know that, you know, when it comes to law, Fiji, as well as in Australia and all over the world, it can be so hard. uh, Well, it can seem to be so hard for women to, you know, stand up for their rights, to advocate for themselves. Where do you see the challenges when it comes to, you know, um, women and the law? I think the challenges that I faced as a woman in Fiji was to voice my concerns pertaining to domestic violence because of the the cultural climate. And I say this with uh, respect. There are certain things that the cultures don't talk about. They, they don't pry into other people's private affairs. So things like domestic violence was an area I found challenging to speak up about. However, when I did reach out to the community and, and try to engage with community awareness workshops and, and educate the community that way, they were on board. They were willing to, to listen. They were willing to explore the elements that constitute domestic violence, such as psychological violence, mental abuse, and uh, financial abuse, and of course there's a physical side of it amongst others, uh, they were quite uh, welcoming to take things on board and and to work progressively to to make changes. So in overcoming those challenges, I think the key is education and how to do it. Um, There's lots of different strategies that can be used to do that. So, for example, although I advocated verbally through law, and through community awareness workshops. One of the other ways was through fashion design. Um, So um, I would be able to connect with these women who had left their domestic violence circumstances. And um, a lot of the women, unfortunately, were in situations where they would be selling their bodies to place food on the table. So I was able to provide them with sewing machines and explore a wonderful gift that many of them had of sewing with sew kaftans. I'd design them, they'd sew them, and we'd put on fashion shows. And that was another way to highlight the plight a lot of these women were were going through. Mm, Indeed. And also it would be so empowering for these women as well to give them back their own ownership of their lives, you know, to make some money, to have something that they can feel proud about. It's it's sometimes those small small things that can make make such a huge and big difference and be that avenue in towards healing. Um, I'm interested in that work with community engagement because obviously, um, you know, this is sometimes, and especially in places where people don't openly talk about um, things like that, it can be a difficult thing to both start that conversation and also being wary that you don't want to re-traumatise people who are survivors or who have gone through that. Um, What does that community engagement look like in order to um, both be treating and be healthy and to be helpful and not to be damaging? That's a very good question, Talia. So the the way I approached it was, um, and we have to, it, it's a case by case basis. So you have to be careful uh, what village you're approaching, what group of people you're approaching, and you're absolutely correct. There are triggers involved, so it comes down to effective dialogue and communication. And the way to do it is just being sensitive to the cultural climate before going into one of the villages, ensuring that. 
I'm dressed appropriately, so I'd be wearing the sulu, which is the Fijian sarong, um, or simply a long dress and um, with arms covered, your legs covered. And um, if it's a village that I haven't visited, I would uh, seek uh, permission from the head person or the chief of that village. Uh, however, most of the time I had connected very well with the women beforehand. I mean, I'd engage in some sort of dialogue with them um, away from the village in a in a coffee shop or a, a, another social setting. And they were able to prepare my arrival into the village and uh, prepare for some people, men and women, to be attending the, the workshop or the seminar would hold there. And it would usually be held at someone's house. Mm. So we start off with, um, as you're aware, the majority of um, Fijians are practicing Christians. So I would sit with them. They would open up in prayer. So we'd be very respectful that way. And um, we'd start in prayer. We'd, we'd talk about some of the challenges surrounding our communities and society when it comes to domestic violence. And then we'd ask for volunteers to to share something about that particular um, division. So what what do they know about domestic violence? Uh, what do they feel are perhaps uh, constraints in their own cultures uh, or perhaps their upbringings or, or their perspectives? And we'd have an informal dialogue where we sort of share that way. At the same time, we'd, we would talk about the rule of law and, and what law says, both local and international, about violence against uh, women and and of course violence against children and and the impacts of alcohol abuse and the impacts of um, glue addiction and things like that. So we were able to explore a myriad of challenges and concerns being faced by that particular community. But again, dialogue is the best way to go. Once you just start a conversation, I would gauge how it's going, what the person is leading with, what they're mm. gravitating towards and, and go from there. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, um, showing just how integral respect is in getting that conversation starting, because if you don't have the respect, no one's going to talk to you. Um, unfortunately, Sabrina, we'll have to leave it there because the um, the end of the show is fast approaching. But thank you so much for joining Pacific Beat. I can't wait to hear more about your story uh, in the future. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That was Sabrina Sharma talking to me there. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat for this Monday morning. Jacob McGuire will be up next after the news with Nisha Daly. And then at 3pm PNG time, Richard Hewitt will be along for the afternoon edition of Pacific Beat. Until tomorrow morning, I'm Talia Olatia. Fa'afatai le fa'alongalongu. Tofa soifua.